0: This week's TribCast is brought to you by UT Health School of Public Health. Advancing public health through its campuses in Austin, Brownsville, Dallas, El Paso, Houston, and San Antonio. Learn more at go.uth.edu. And Texas Conference for Women. Join networking expert and luminary founder Kate Luzio for a timely conversation about how to network virtually listen at conferencesforwomen.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for September tenth, twenty twenty one. My name is Matthew Watkins. I'm managing editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week, I'm joined by three Texas Tribune reporters, including Allison Waller. Hello, Allison.
2: I'm Matthew. Happy to be here.
1: Thanks for joining us, Reese Oxner. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Patrick Spitek. Hi there. Hey, Patrick. All right. So. It is, as I mentioned, September 10th, which means that we are in day 10 of Texas's new abortion law, being the the law of the land here in the state, and there's been a lot of action surrounding this new law this week. Um, We had Abbott giving his first comments on it, which we will discuss here in a little bit. Uh, Three of the four clinics in San Antonio that provide abortions confirmed uh, to the Tribune and other outlets that they've stopped doing the procedure. Due to the kind of legal concerns surrounding the law, and uh, most recently yesterday, the Biden administration filed suit against uh, the state of Texas seeking to block block the law. Uh, Reese, I want to stop with you. Start with you, since you've been covering kind of the legal machinations around this. Uh, the lawsuit, like we said, came from the Biden administration. I think it's it's probably fair to say the Biden administration had been feeling some pressure to do something about this law, which has gained a lot of national attention and raised concern. You know kind of about whether the, the, right to abor- of an, a, the right to an abortion in Roe v. Wade has been kind of taken away by the Supreme Court's decision not to block it. Um, but as we mentioned, the Supreme Court has already decided not to block it once. Can you tell us a little bit about this suit and what, if anything, makes it different than kind of other efforts to, to keep, it, keep this law from going into effect?
3: Yeah, for sure, Matthew. So like you mentioned, uh, the law's construction has made it very difficult for uh, opponents of it to successfully overturn it in court so far, and so a lot of eyes have been on the Department of Justice because uh, we've just been waiting for what they've, uh, waiting for them to announce what they've been planning uh, ever since they said they were looking to legal avenues they could take, and so so far this law it it makes some of the same cases or the same case on merit, saying that it's uh, unconstitutional that you can't take away a person's right to an abortion in the United States. But I think that the more unique approach that it also includes is it's arguing that Texas's law is violating and interfering with federal interests and operations as well. And I don't think we've seen that argument in courts yet. And so that's just another kind of hook that might be able to be uh, held onto in courts. And so we haven't seen Any arguments, of course, yet the lawsuit was just filed. Uh, But some of the legal experts I've talked to are already a little bit skeptical of how the case may unfold. It really depends on how uh, the law is interpreted and how just this kind of problem of who's enforcing the law and who we can sue is working out. The other piece of the federal uh, lawsuit that's interesting is it essentially aims to block the enforcement on a everyday citizen basis so during typical lawsuits when you're trying to stop something from being enforced you have to enjoin against a specific defendant the reason this law was hard to do that with is because it allows private citizens to enforce it not attorney generals or state officials or law enforcement and so if this lawsuit were to be successful it looks like it would block everyday citizens from having these lawsuits on the grounds of interfering with federal interests and violating uh, individual's constitutional
1: rights. Right. So, and, and we saw a little bit of that in the response from Ken Paxton yesterday, I know he said on Twitter, something along the lines of, you know, Biden has basically sued every Texan in the state, you know, trying to, to, to block them from, from being able to do this. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, one of the reasons the Supreme, or I guess, not one of the reasons, the reason the Supreme Court declined to step in before was, you know, they were not validating the constitutionality of the law they were basically saying, right, that um, it was a matter of standing, right? And it was unclear whether the people who were being sued ever had any intention of actually enforcing the law. And if they hadn't done that yet, they, they, they wouldn't do it. So, so tell us a little bit, I mean, you've, you've spent some time researching and writing about kind of what the next steps are in this legal fight. Of course, you know, the, there are other opportunities for this law to get to the Supreme Court, but it kind of needs to weave its way through the federal courts first, right?
3: Correct. Yeah. So we're already uh, seeing seeing the overall lawsuit aiming to overturn the case. Uh, It's still in limbo. It's the one that kind of triggered the Supreme Court ruling we saw last week. But that case is still ongoing. It wasn't dismissed. And so right now we're sitting, uh, waiting for the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to make a decision. They had ordered a stay, on the case, um, as well as canceling a hearing that was supposed to bring abortion providers and other uh, advocates to talk about why the law should be overturned. Well, that was canceled. And the, the court of appeals is supposed to announce either a continued stay where they're going to keep the case in limbo, or they should be able to end the stay. And they can also do a couple of other legal technical things like removing some of those defendants that, uh, they don't believe is rightfully named in the lawsuit. And so, once that area frees up, we could see some things develop on, a, on the original lawsuit in federal district court as well.
1: So, so that stay was issued, the hearing that, that you're talking about was supposed to take place on the Monday before the law went into effect, I believe on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, right? Like, you know, we're talking about I, days before it went into effect. As you said, it was supposed to be a temporary measure, but we we haven't seen them lift that stay or take an action to make it you know permanent yet. Is there any explanation as to why not?
3: So we haven't had an official statement from the court as to why they haven't made a statement yet. And honestly, there isn't a legal deadline, um, mm-hmm. so it could be you know weeks or even uh, months later that they make their decision. And so that that kind of area is still really murky. And from the the legal experts and the attorneys I spoke to were really just uh, waiting on their decision to see which direction the case could progress in. And that's, of course, separate from the the federal lawsuit, which will have its own hearing and can develop on a completely different timeline than what we're waiting on in this court. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Okay. Very good. And so, you know, Allison, I want to turn to you, you know, one of the um, the big aspects of this law, you know, I think two two very unusual parts of this law, right? One, the, the kind of private enforcement mechanism that we already talked about, the, that any citizen can bring a suit against a um, an abortion provider or anyone who aids and abets an abortion and 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 can in return get a, a kind of reward from the court of $10,000 or more. But then there's also the uh, what people are calling kind of the six week ban, right? That this is so much farther up you know, so much earlier that they're banning that was previously kind of allowable under law. And you've, you've done a little bit of reporting on this about how, you know, even calling it a six week ban, you know, that's, that's talking about uh, six weeks into pregnancy, but actually there's a much tighter window to actually, you know, for a, 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 a patient to actually get an abortion. Can you explain that a little bit of, of, of how, why that is and how that works?
2: Yes, yeah, of course. Um, so kind of this past weekend, uh, Governor Abbott was very adamant on saying you know, um, that people actually do have six weeks to get an abortion, but that very much was kind of a, a false mischaracterized statement on his behalf. Um, and that's mainly due to the fact in the way that usually Pregnancy is measured, especially in the medical sense. So, you know, the the start date for a pregnancy that a doctor would measure um, would start at the you know the first day of a woman's last period. Um, and so, we talk of the measure of pregnancy in terms of gestational gestational age. And so, you know, it starts the first week of your last period. About two weeks from there, you can start ovulating, which is you know when the egg is released, um, and that's like a likely window where you know. The likelihood of pregnancy increases um, and conception can occur and so from there you're kind of two weeks from like your last period, Um, say, and if you were to have intercourse and then get pregnant um, just around. Say around that four week time, that would be around your next period. A lot of women, unless they're keeping really close track of their period, may not know that they have in this period. So, up until that time, you're about four weeks into pregnancy, you would say. And so, you know, you're already like have about two weeks out at the most, Um, you know, if you're wanting to plan to terminate the pregnancy or get an abortion and so really you know it's it's a misnomer to say that someone has six weeks under this law um you know to terminate their pregnancy when in reality they can have maybe up to two weeks ideally but um it can really be less than that
1: sure i mean you're the the basically the clock is starting on that six weeks you know in a lot of cases before conception right i mean exactly because of how this you know how the medical community views this, which might be different than what some might think. The, um, you know, I, I, in your story, it was interesting to hear from, you know, doctors and and people talking about this about how, you know that that window is so tight you know you also talked about how there's a 24 hour waiting period which kind of clo- slows down that window too and even situations i think you 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 quoted one doctor who who worked in a clinic where basically someone came in said they wanted an abortion you know had their ultrasound which is required by law left to kind of start that 24 hour clock then came back the next day and they were able to detect you know what lawmakers to term as a have have termed as a fetal heartbeat. I know that's a little different because the yeah. there is no heart at that point. But 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 I mean we're talking about that that kind of highlights how tight of a window we're talking about here, right?
2: Yes, yeah, I would say you're correct, and I too I just want to like make clear we're getting like that six week timeline because in the law, like you said, you know lawmakers have. Labeled it as, you know, once a fetal heartbeat or cardiac activity is mainly what a lot of medical professionals use to um, say the term, Uh, once that is detected, a woman can't get an abortion. And so usually that happens around the six week mark. Um, And so like you said, Heartbeat, some, a lot of medical professionals actually have said that's kind of not the right way to describe it since, you know, there's not a fully developed heart around the six week mark. There's a little, a lot of um, doctors have told me a flicker, which means like, you know, on the ultrasound, you can, you can see there's something there moving, but it's kind of too small to even hear what we know is like a heartbeat now. but uh, anyway, um, kind of to go back to what you were saying, uh, yes, it's a really short time window and to take into account just how hard it even, under normal circumstances before this law, how hard it was to get an abortion in Texas. You know, uh, previous laws made it where, you know, you have to have um, an ultrasound 24 hours before uh, you go and get an, or you have an abortion procedure. And then, you know, under this new law, um, a lot of medical professionals have interpreted it like They need to do the ultrasound again when the person comes back because they want to make sure that, you know, they can't detect cardiac activity because they don't want to be going against the law. So, I mean, it just puts these extra burdens on top of a person already like dealing um, with something as uh, just extreme as pregnancy. They're having to make these decisions in such short time windows. Um, And it's not really even weeks. It can be days. So um, it's just a lot to think about.
1: And I think that gets to kind of why a lot of people are calling this kind of a near abortion ban, right? Because um, the vast majority of abortions that were happening in this state, uh, according to providers, were happening after that six-week mark. And in in some cases, you know, we talk about a week or two weeks or anything like that. In some cases, you know, many people don't take a a pregnancy test on like on like day one after you know they were. So so we, we could be talking about a lot of people who maybe don't even find out they're pregnant until past that six weeks mark, when, it, when it's a little bit too late.
2: Exactly. And it's too, and you know, accounting for people that have irregular periods, not everyone's period works on a really precise clock, you know, these yeah. change. So um, it's really hard to kind of put things in sort of a binary when talking about this and saying, you know, someone has exactly two weeks or someone yeah. has the complete six weeks, which some p- politicians have said. Um, you have to be really nuanced about how you look at it.
1: So, so you spent some time talking to doctors for this story. I mean, how would you just describe the mindset of of the, the providers that you've been talking to right now? What, what are they, you know, how, how are they what are they doing about this right now? What are they what are they thinking about about what's going on in the state?
2: Um, I would characterize it as um, a lot of providers right now I think are just like apprehensive you know they don't want to go against the law but I think at the same time they definitely see holes and flaw in the law and especially is how they like approach their own how they approach their own jobs and what they do um, you know I think also as well just in terms of how they overall you know take care of a patient when it comes to like pregnancy and everything like that they want to like make sure they have all the options on the table. And in this sense, this is one option that was really like, no longer kind of existent anymore for a patient. Um, You know, not saying they're forcing a patient to do anything, of course. Um, But I definitely think they're still trying to figure out how does this work with how they deal with people on a day-to-day basis. Um, And I think, you know, with time we're gonna see probably, you know, how doctors and providers will handle this. Um, But I think right now it's still very like new and fresh where they're still trying to figure out themselves. How does this work in a day-to-day situation?
1: Reese, one thing that I have watched with interest is, you know, we've seen these lawsuits trying to challenge the law. What we have not seen, at least to my knowledge, at least that has gotten any kind of, you know, public attention are any lawsuits that have been filed you know, under the new authorities established by this law, right? No, not hearing of any abortion providers or anyone else being sued for the quote, aiding and abetting abortions. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah. So we,
3: like you said, we were kind of watching to see if these lawsuits were going to come out. Uh, One of the fears was that a deluge of lawsuits could just cause financial strain on clinics, even if there was not a by credible reason these lawsuits were held. But I think talking to uh, just various legal experts as well as anti-abortion advocates, the reason is because those kind of lawsuits could get struck down and they might even uh, help in the in the efforts to overturn the law. Because in a, a lower court, they may determine, hey, this is actually violating constitutional rights and it can be escalated to higher courts from there. And so it's actually in um, the best interest in some cases for anti-abortion advocates to not just come up with lawsuits if there's not credible reasons, right? And so I think the, the other big reason that we haven't seen any is that almost, I mean, as far as we know, all abortion clients have come into compliance with the new law out of that fear of just that financial ruin that could come from getting hit with these lawsuits. Each lawsuit, uh, if, if successful, comes with a $10,000 fine at minimum, it could be higher. And since there isn't really a financial uh, barrier to people filing them, uh, because lots of organizations would sponsor them and they can't uh, have their attorney fees recouped from the other party, even if they lose, uh, it really leads it to being a very financial dicey situation for clinics. And so we haven't seen any clinics outright say they're going to uh, defy the law. And so I think for a lot of the anti-abortion um, advocates, it's in their best interest not to bring up frivolous lawsuits at this point. Mm-hmm. Effectively, it's shut down operations. Uh, it's had a very large chilling effect on the mm-hmm. state. Even prior to the law coming into effect, uh, claims were already canceling abortion uh, appointments and and trying to get all the ones they could up until that midnight deadline.
1: Yep. Yeah, so the I know the uh, executive director of uh, Planned Parenthood South Texas uh, was quoted in the Tribune this week saying kind of their hope is that the threat of civil lawsuits will somehow become neutralized by the courts and then, and quote, and then we can get back about the business of providing whatever care is legally permissible. But right now, it does feel like they're just kind of in this holding pattern and it does make you wonder kind of how long that holding power will last. Um, Patrick, I want to ask you about kind of the political uh reaction to this you know abbott made a lot got a lot of attention this week when he was asked about particularly how this bill does not have any kind of exception for victims of rape or incest and you know he he came back and said that was when he said they have the six weeks that we talked about earlier with allison he also talked about you know kind of the the solution to that is eliminating rape in texas uh i think most people would agree that's not an achievable goal, but uh, and it got a lot of kind of pushback from him. But more speaking more broadly, Patrick, I mean, how are you seeing the politics of this play out? Uh, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I'm wondering if you have a different opinion here. It still seems to me that it's maybe a little bit quieter than I would have expected, uh, given that this has been such a hot button issue in politics for, for so long. Yeah, you haven't seen necessarily outspoken championing
4: of this uh, law going into effect by every Republican elected official in Texas or every Republican elected leader. You know, obviously Abbott has been out front on it as the the governor who signed it. Um, you know, and then you've had the lieutenant governor. Um, you know, who uh, helped pass it in his chamber be out front on it. But you haven't heard. It's not the kind of state level law that's broken through to the federal officials. For example, you haven't seen a lot from Ted Cruz or John Cornyn on this. Haven't seen a lot from the Republican members of the congressional delegation. Um, and, you know, you haven't seen um, some of the more moderate state Republican state lawmakers speak out about it. And so I think you're right in that. You um, You know, even though this got strong Republican support when it came time to actually vote for it um, right now, you're not seeing kind of universal, um, you know, promotion of it by Republican officials in Texas. Um, I think that some of them may privately be a little uncomfortable with how far it goes. Some of them may be wanting, you know, may, you know, accepted it as inevitable that it was going to be challenged in the courts. They want to see want to see that play out first. Um, but I think you're right in that you haven't seen the kind of universal Republican embrace of this, um, as you may have seen with the election bill, for example, um, where you have, you know, it breaking through at the federal level and people like Ted Cruz and John Cornyn speaking out in support of it.
1: Yeah, Patrick, it's also been interesting. Uh, our politics editor made this point to me earlier this week uh, uh, it, that there hasn't really been any Democrat to rally behind in this. You know, uh, we're obviously getting closer to a gubernatorial election in Texas, Democrats do not have a candidate. You could see this as a moment where even if it's not necessarily a um, an issue that Democrats want to be running on statewide, and I don't know, maybe they feel it is, it's hard to say at this point, but at the very least that there could, you know, there's a lot of national attention on this right now. And in those moments, you know, there are people who want to send money to Texas to unseat Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick or whoever else. And it does not seem like Democrats have really been that positioned to, to take advantage of the kind of national democratic outrage that this law has uh, has has sparked.
4: Yeah, that's largely correct. They The Democrats still don't have a serious candidate for governor and if um, Beto O'Rourke does not run, uh, there's really not much of a bench beyond him. And so the story right now with that race is as it's been, you know, for over half a year now, which is that, um, a lot of people are hoping that Beto O'Rourke runs for governor. Um, and if not, the party is in a really tough spot trying to find someone, um, who they can put up against, uh, Abbott, um, who continues to be a fundraising machine. Um, obviously his approval rating, um, you know, has gone underwater recently and that's given them, um, you know, even more of a sense of his vulnerability. Uh, but at the same time, they have to find someone to, to rally around. And if it's not going to be Beto O'Rourke, um,
0: the bench is pretty thin, as I said.
1: Yep. All right. Uh, thanks. Let's, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors.
0: This week's Tribcast is brought to you by Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. And Texas Women's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. More at twu.edu health. Okay, so
1: the other big Texas political issue that popped up this week is that we have our date set and our agenda set for Special session number three. Can you believe it? Our third special session, the basically all 2020, 2021, has, has turned out to be a legislative year for Texas. Patrick, uh, Governor Greg Abbott called this on uh, the, the 7th uh, on Tuesday. Can you tell us a little bit about um, you know, what we're expecting for, for round three, or I guess round four of the, of the legislature this year?
4: Yeah, it is really the never-ending uh, legislature this year. I'm, you can hear the exhilaration in my voice, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, the agenda for this third special session is a lot smaller um, than the last one we had, where he had 17 items. Uh, but it includes some, some really weighty issues, such as redistricting, obviously, which is always contentious. Um, You know, it includes a broad item on mandates related to the pandemic, I guess, specifically vaccine mandates. Um, and you could see the legislature wanting to go in a lot of different directions uh, on that so that is quite the i think open-ended charge to give to the legislature um you know and it does include some leftover uh red meat as you may want to call it from the previous special sessions which is those restrictions proposed restrictions on transgender student athletes Um, so smaller agenda but still pretty big issues um and you can see how um, in some ways, this third special session may not be as politically uh, you know contentious, but you could also see on some of these issues that may seem um, you know more serious on the face of it, how they could still wade into more uh, politically sensitive territory. And so um, you know, again, it, it may not be as action packed. Uh, as the previous two special sessions, or, or, or hold the potential for as much drama as the previous two sessions, um, but you could s- certainly see that this is not going to be a boring third special session.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we we've talked about uh, Democrats breaking quorum, fleeing the state. Of course, uh, the last time they did this previously was due to a midterm redistricting. So I think I, I'd say, especially the redistricting area right. has has a lot of potential for drama. Um, We'll see whether there's much energy for that after, you know, it does seem like everyone's pretty exhausted after, uh, you know, the last few months and everything like that. So, so I guess we will see. Um, I mean, what are you looking for in redistricting Patrick, what interests you the most of, of that issue.
4: Yeah, I mean, just the tensions that, you know, we don't have our demographics reporter Alexa here, but I mean, just, you know, what she would point out is just the continuing tensions of trying to draw these legislative maps with such a fast growing uh, population in Texas that is being driven uh, overwhelmingly uh, by people of color um, and how Republicans who are in control of the redistricting process try to square that um, to their political benefit. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, political questions, you know, uh, that that are going to come along with redistricting process. But there are a lot of um, more serious questions uh, about, uh, you know, how voters are going to be represented, how these uh, the, the new Texas residents and the new people um, coming to the state are going to be represented. Again, those being overwhelmingly um, people of color. And so that's kind of the, the big overarching theme here that I think we're all focused on.
1: Definitely, definitely. So um, the the issue of, as um, as Abbott termed it in his call, disallowing a student from competing in UIL athletic competitions designated for the sex opposite to the student's sex at birth. Uh, basically, what we're talking here about is requiring transgender uh, students to uh, play on teams other than their uh, than the uh, gender that they identify with. Allison, you've covered this. Uh, three rounds of this, I believe uh, in the Mm -hmm. Texas legislature, it has been a, it has not made it through for the first three. Can you tell us a little bit about why, uh, like what what has kind of blocked it up until this point?
2: Um, Yes, so uh, you're correct. It hasn't of course made it through for the first three, kind of the first one was, um, I know Democrats had stage a pretty notable walkout during the regular session, kind of, you know, showing up um, uh, other legislators and, you know, not getting uh, the voting bill passed. And then kind of with the first one, um, again, you know, with the whole uh, going to DC and everything, Democrats were not there for a quorum um, to be had um, at the Capitol and enough of them weren't there for it to get uh, to the house basically, or, you know, for it to get to a committee in the house. Um, this like, this legislation is basically sailed through the Senate throughout all the, the regular session and the special sessions pretty easily. Um, it literally always seems as though um, it's the house uh, that uh, has not been, uh, I guess, able to really give it uh, what it needs for for it to pass. Um, and so this last special session, it did get pretty close getting into committee and um, in the House, the Public Education Committee, but um, it was actually uh, tied up and left pending. Uh, the chair of the committee, uh, Representative Harold Dunn decided twice, I believe, not to take a vote or bring it up for a vote to get it on the floor. Um, So it just has been left pending there. Um, But it's been a very, I think, tough battle, especially for a lot of people that have been coming to the Capitol to testify against the bill. Um, You know, what I've What I've heard from advocates and even um, some transgender Texans themselves is that you know it's for them it's really sad to see it brought up again and again, and their identities be put into question. Um, So it's definitely um, interesting uh, to see how things will turn out and to see if, you know, maybe this bill, will it have the same fate as the bathroom bill did or will it not so.
1: Yeah, I mean, it has really been a kind of a roller coaster for this bill going through. I mean, this was, of course, we we talked about this several months ago. This was a bill that, um, you know, Harold Dutton, as you mentioned, chair of the Public Education Committee, has a lot of control over whether this could ever reach the House floor. He is a Democrat, and so I think a lot of people who are opposed to this bill have taken solace in knowing that he's there. But, of course, he did allow it to get to the floor in the regular session, uh, largely as in retaliation against his fellow Democrats who had killed a bill related to edu- another education-related bill that he was in favor of, it didn't make it out due in part due to the the walkout. Although I think there. Very legitimate questions as to whether it would have made it out anyways um, and then and then, of course, in, in the, the second special session, as you mentioned it, it didn't get through as well so. Um, and then and then it's back and and we'll see we'll see what happens um, I'll, I'll be very curious to see whether. Um, you know you can't really use the calendar this time you can't really use the deadlines in a special session with only five items to say you know we just couldn't get to it, which is often the way that bills that, um, you know, house leadership maybe is okay with dying, but, uh, don't want kind of the, the blood on their hands, uh, uh, to that's how they are allowed to die. So, so I think it could be kind of an interesting political standoff here, but I actually, before we uh, wrap up, I want to take a step back a little bit farther, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and talk about a story, Patrick, you ran uh, late last week uh, about just kind of looking at the legislature at a whole and how conservative, how, how some of these just kind of massive conservative pieces of legislation have made it through, uh, you know, during a time when, you know, several years ago, even in conservative Texas, those seemed like, you know, maybe like a bridge too far for some of the leadership or something. I mean, can you just riff for us a little bit on, on how conservative this past year has been in the legislature, Patrick?
4: Well, that last week um, that you're referring to seemed to really bring into relief how much the political pendulum, at least when it comes to policymaking, has swung to the right in Texas since the 2020 election. Obviously Democrats, uh, were heading into that election, uh, thinking that they had kind of, a you know, one of their best shots in, in recent history, uh, to turn the tide in their favor in Texas. Um, you know, they thought there was a statewide win within reach, whether it was John Cornyn losing or or Donald Trump losing Texas. Um, they wanted to pick up several uh, congressional seats and they thought they had a good chance of doing that. They were pretty getting pretty bullish about flipping the state house, which would have been humongously consequential to the future of policymaking in Texas. Um, but instead they fell they pretty short uh, in virtually all those uh, political categories. Um, and then you had the Republicans, you know, charge into this uh, regular session and these special sessions, um, you know, taking the state in a very conservative direction. And I think you saw that all kind of, you know, become very vividly illustrated during that last week with permitless carry going into effect with this new abortion law going into effect, with the elections bill finally making it to uh, the governor's desk, um, you know, you look back at that 2020 election, um, and there's a pretty credible case to be made that if Democrats were more successful, you would have neither none of those three events happening last week. There would be no permitless carry. It would never have been able to make it through a Democratic-led House, state house. You would have no the you know what Republicans call a heartbeat bill would never make it through a Democratic led state house and the same thing for the elections bill. And so I think what we wrote in that story, just how that week, you know, really more than any other week so far this calendar year, uh, seemed to illustrate again, that political pendulum swinging to the right after the 2020 election, at least when it comes to the policymaking side of things.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, it wasn't too long ago where there were basically the Republicans had a super majority in the house and, and, uh, had, you know, much larger, uh, margins in that, it's, and it, the they, Democrats didn't flip the House as expected. But I mean, we have seen in recent years things trending a little bit more in the Democratic direction. I think there's a very good question as to whether that trend will continue in 2022, given kind of the national uh, situation, and it could end up being a tough midterm election nationally for Democrats. But um, you know, I, I've I have just found it very interesting that. You know, so much of this is about perception is, and, and it, you know, most years, 10 years ago, this would have been a, a, a relatively small margin, you know, uh, Trump winning Texas by six would have been a, uh, you know, a cause for concern for Republicans, but given that expectations by Democrats were so high, it did seem to have given Republicans a lot of confidence uh, to and, and you know, what they would have touted and perceived as a mandate to kind of be pushing through these very conservative issues. An interesting thing to watch. And of course, we will see how conservative they go for the special session here in uh, the coming weeks. Uh, Thank you to Patrick, Allison, and Reese for joining us this week. Thank you to our producer, Todd. And thank you to our sponsors, the UT School of Public Health, the Texas Conference for Women, Texas Biomed, and Texas Women's University. We'll talk to you all next week.